You are listening to a podcast from Camden Community Radio. www.ccradio.org experts and we have zero psychological training and we're trying to figure out what the hell is going on welcome to tearing us apart that was great yeah good take all right friends you have seen the heavy groups now you will see morning maniac music believe me yeah Welcome to Tearing Us Apart. That was uh, Jefferson Airplane playing at Woodstock where half a million people were standing in a muddy field, uh, swaying around doped up to their eyeballs and and starting a a, a cultural revolution. So yes, that's a clue about the subject of today's show, um, which because it's 50 years since Woodstock, I thought it'd be fun to look at the psychology of the kind of hippie counterculture movement. I'm so excited that you decided to do this. <laughs> I've been I've been totally because obviously of the anniversary there's been so much talk about it and like the stories and getting all of the music and the pictures out and I have loved the last few weeks where that's been happening because um yeah. Because you're a hippie it's a at pers- heart personal favorite of mine, hippie at heart. <laughs> So yeah, uh, where to start? Well, where to start kind of unpicking the psychology of this counterculture to kind of think about it? I found two different, two psychologists who do kind of shed some light on what the psychology, in a very broad sense, what might have been kind of the underpinnings of it. And so the first one is a really well, well, they're both very famous. The first one is a heavy hitting psychologist who is a proper psychologist thinker and the second one was also a proper psychologist until he just became a major drug dealer um and Mm -hmm. so let's start with the sort of um the proper psychologist so the guy who's called abraham maslow he's a really big psychologist he came up with this really famous thing called a hierarchy of needs which was um essentially kind of common sense in a way he just said that you know human beings have this hierarchy of needs so at the bottom of it you know you've got your most essential needs like food warmth and sex you put that one as the most essential which i think is a bit weird but why essential (laughs) and at the top of this at the very top is something he called like self-actualization and that basically means that you have fulfilled all your inner needs all your innate desires and you've kind of become the person that you were always meant to be if you're an artist, you'll 
paint and if you're a writer you'll write and if you're a poet you know you'll poem and um, <laughs> and the and that all sounds really simple but he said that the problem is which kind of makes sense was that as you go up through these needs the drive becomes like less strong you know like so uh-huh. you have a really strong drive to eat like everyone feels that and we can all and we're all aware of that but as you go up as you get higher up the drive becomes less like apparent to you and more easily deflected and that's where that's where the man has really crushed us all because when you get to these higher levels our drives have been sort of suppressed you know by people telling us no you can't be a painter stop being silly you know go get a job and um and he was all about we need to kind of get people in touch with their inner self and their inner desires and they might not be the same desires as like society has for them you know that we might not want to all become rich bankers so I think that's really interesting that that was um, a really kind of dominant, a really big thinker at the time was having this, in psychology, was having this kind Mm -hmm. of hippie swerve. Like he was like, yeah, put away all the experiments and like everyone just go find yourself um, and let's and let's help people to do that. But then how do you actually do this? And um, he was all about kind of psychology and kind of traditional things. But obviously the counterculture came up with... um, were more interested in things that might open the doors of perception a little bit quicker. And um, right. that's where they got really into, um, yeah, well, the way that drugs could help you see reality, you know, see your reality a, a bit differently. That's where you come to our second uh, American psychologist, which was a guy called Timothy Leary, who basically um, introduced, LSD had been around for a while, but he was he is a guy, you know, credited with really introducing LSD into the counterculture. And, and his life is kind of, a, a beautiful representation of maybe this journey that a lot of people were going on. He started off, he was in the war briefly as a young man. Which war? Uh, World War II. Um, mm-hmm. He wasn't doing much fighting, but he was a, psycho- a young psychologist bouncing around in the war. He got married at the end of the war. He and his wife um, both became alcoholics and she uh, sadly committed suicide. He Jesus. was left with the kids um, and he was a psychologist by now um, and he was working at a university and he wrote about this time of his life saying he was an anonymous institutional employee who drove to work each morning in a long line of commuter cars and who drove home each night and drank martinis like several million middle-class liberal intellectual robots like in that image you can you can hear the you know the distant sound of a million hippie footsteps coming towards you like that's (laughs) that's the problem that's what the problem was like society was too regimented too constrained um people wanted to break out even you know everyone you know a lot of people were feeling this kind of pressure um Mm -hmm. so somehow he hears about um this native people in mexico who eat magic mushrooms as part of a religious ceremony and he thinks he'll pop down and try some. And of course. This was in August 1960. And he said that, you know, after eating these mushrooms, he learned more about his brain and its possibilities and more about psychology in the five hours after taking those mushrooms than in the preceding 15 years of studying and doing research. So there you go. Huh. <laughs> so he went back. Okay. 
He went back to Harvard. He found uh-huh. out that the... Game ever of mushrooms. That's exactly what happened. He found out the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, if you don't know, is, is this chemical called psilocybin or psilocybin, something like that. And it's... um. And LSD is the uh, most kind of potent form of it. So um, he started uh, just handing out LSD and doing loads of experiments with LSD and how it affects your mind. A friendly campus drug dealer. <laughs> like, to pass his classes, in effect, you had to take LSD. <laughs> <laughs> and then write a paper high and then hand it in with no recollection of ever doing any work. Sounds kind of great. He he did get fired eventually, but but not before um, the classes became really famous and what he and his message really caught on. Um, and like yeah, the uh, poet Allen Ginsberg came up to be. Uh, he was loads of people came. Allen Ginsberg was you know an example of the sort of person who started coming. Um, I got a quote, a final quote here of um, how he talked about what a psychedelic experience was. Um, so a psychedelic experience is a journey to new realms of consciousness. The scope and content of the experience is limitless, but it, but its characteristic features are the transcendence of verbal concepts, of space-time dimensions, and of the ego or identity. Such experiences of enlarged consciousness can occur in a variety of ways. Sensory deprivation, yoga exercises, disciplined meditation, religious or aesthetic ecstasy, or spontaneously. Spontaneously, most recently, they have become available to anyone through the ingestion of psychedelic drugs such as LSD. Of course, the drug does not produce the transcendent experience; it merely acts as a chemical key. It opens the mind, frees the nervous system of its ordinary patterns and structures. So, yeah. Um, so, I'm- in th- in theory, you could get to that same kind of higher thought process without the drug. Like yeah, the drug is exactly. just kind of like the easy way in. And actually, yeah, that then loops back round to what the Maslow guy was saying. They're both saying, they're both after the same thing, like to get to these higher levels of consciousness. Um, it's just that Maslow thinks you should do it by kind of having psychological, you know, visiting your local, yeah. Um, yeah, your local psychiatrist and uh, having and kind of talking about all the repressed experiences and trying to find the inner you. And Leary uh-huh. thinks you should just drop some acid. And obviously Leary's theory of just dropping some acid ended up being a bit more influential in the wider counterculture. Um, and that's where, that's the route people took rather than um, Woodstock being a, a huge festival for um, psychotherapy. Huh. Probably more fun with the acid as well. Yeah, maybe. There was, um, it was interesting that you said earlier that Ginsburg was one of the people who arrived on, on these buses I'm picturing to get their LSD. Because um, you asked, you said that the t- my task for this week was yes. to uh, share my favorite uh, hippie style. Poem. Far out. <laughs> my favorite far out poem. So. I chose one that is by Ginsburg, actually, uh, before I knew he would be featured in this. Far out. And... <laughs> Whoa. It's like waves of consciousness between... It's like we're connected on some higher level, Whoa, man. Oh, man. Oh, and you've got your intro. Yeah, and it's time to do our um, crazy poems. and uh, But to yeah, lead <laughs> us into that, 
I've got um, a recording that I'm going to play, uh, which is Leary, our man, our, um, our prolific drug dealer and thinker, <laughs> and his friend um, and pal Ram Das. Um, and this is a record they put out to help people on mind-bending journeys. You are now about to begin the great adventure, the journey out of your mind. You will leave behind you your ego, your beloved personality, which will be returned to you at the end of this voyage. Covered with yellow leaves and morning rain, Kel Deluge, he threw up his hands and wrote, The universe don't exist, and died to prove it. Full moon over Ozone Park, airport bus rushing through dust to Manhattan, Jack the Wizard in his grave at Lowell for the first night. That Jack through whose eyes I saw smog glory light gold over Manhattan spires. We'll never see these chimneys smoking any more over statues of Mary in the graveyard, black misted canyons rising over the bleak river, bright doll-like ads for Esso bread, replicas multiplying beards farewell to the cross, eternal fixity. The big-headed wax-painted Buddha doll pale resting in coffined. Empty-skulled New York streets and starveling phantoms filling city, wax dolls walking Park Avenue. Light gleaming eyeglass and voice echoing through microphones, Grand Central Sailor's arrival two decades later. Feeling melancholy. Nostalgia for innocent World War II. A million corpses running across 42nd Street. Glass buildings rising higher, transparent aluminium, artificial trees, robot sofas, ignorant cars, one way street to heaven. Gray subway roar. A wrinkled brown-faced fellow with swollen hands leans to the blinking plate glass, mirroring white poles. The heavy car sways on tracks uptown to Columbia. Jack No More step off at Penn Station. Anonymous errand eat sandwich and drink beer near New Yorker Hotel or walk under the shadow of Empire State. Didn't we stare at each other length of the car and read headlines and faces through newspaper holes? Sexual cocked and horny-bodied young look at beauteous Rainbow and sweet Jenny riding to class from Columbus Circle. Here the kindly dope fiend lived, and the redneck sheriff beat the long-haired boy on the ass. 103rd Street, Broadway. Me and Hal abused for sidewalk begging 25 years ago. Can I go back in time and lay my head on a teenage belly upstairs on 110th Street or step off the iron car with Jack at blue-tiled Columbia sign? At last the old brown station where I had a holy vision's been rebuilt, clean ceramic over the scum and spit and cum of quarter century. Flying to Maine on a trail of black smoke and Kerouac's 
obituary conserves time's front paragraphs. Empire State and heaven sunset red. White mist in old October. Over the billion trees of Bronx, there's too much to see. Jack saw sunset red over Hudson Horizon, two, three decades back. 39, 49, 59, 69. John Holmes pursed his lips, wet tears. Smoke plumed up from oceanside chimneys and plain roars towards Montauk, stretched in red sunset. Northport, in the trees. Jack drank rock gut and made haikus of birds tweetling on his porch rail at dawn. Fell down and saw death's golden light in Florida garden a decade ago. Now taken utterly, soul upward, and body down in wood coffin and concrete slab box. I threw a kissed handful of damp earth down on the stone lid and sighed and looked in Creeley's one eye. Peter Sweet holding a flower, Gregory Toothless bending his knuckle to cinema machine. And that's the end of the drabble-tongued poet who sounded his knock-up throughout the Northwest Passage. Blue dusk over Saybrook, Holmes sits down to dine Victorian, and time has a ten-page spread on homosexual fairies. Well, while I'm here, I'll do the work. And what's the work? To ease the pain of living. Everything else, drunken dumb show. Mmm. Mmm. Yeah. Mm. I like it. I like it. No, that was great. I was looking out my window while you read it. Very beautifully read. Thank you very much. Uh, I liked that one, actually. I like it even more having heard this whole story of the time, because I think this is obviously a, a poem for Jack Kerouac when he died, who's kind of the embodiment of that. I know he's a bit pre-hippie, but kind of the embodiment of that totally movement in terms of, you know, rejecting the man and, like, going off and doing what you actually want to do in self, kind of having your own self-identity. And how, I, I love the last line, how it says that everything else is the drunk and dumb show. Yeah. And all of this other stuff is actually the real, the real thing. Yeah. 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 It's brilliant. So yeah. That worked well. <laughs> I feel like Jack is the self-actualized man. You know, he's kind of, off, he's <laughs> the, the one man. doing, he's off doing crazy things while everyone else is kind of covering up his, I don't know, what was it? They were covering up his blood and sweat and cum with, with ceramic tiles, you know. Yeah. Like the yeah, man exactly. is like painting the, the wider society. And anyway, yeah, brilliant. Great, great hippie poem. <laughs> and amazing that Allen Ginsberg was uh, with this guy Leary. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. But yeah, that was great. I need to go back and read um, Allen Ginsberg poems like I used to at university. And yeah, I did that at university yeah. too. <laughs> I was like, where's the Ginsberg when you, when you said that to me? <laughs> you know, I wish I'd been there. That's what I was thinking. Is like, and that's what I said at the start. And it's true. I, I wish that I'd been at university in this hippie. I feel like I really would have gone well in this hippie era. Like the idea, I feel like I would too. <laughs> the idea of the, the main pursuit of the counterculture, you know, the youth movement being like yeah like kind of psychological journeys and and this kind of crazy mind stuff like that's what i'm into anyway <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're here this is what we're trying to recreate <laughs> i'll do my poem mine i wrote a poem oh okay yep which may or may you had not more success than me be biographical 
High on the hills with wavy heather, chasing the trees down the groovy glen. Oh boy, here comes that swan again. My mum's got to try some of this. Locked in this moment that's been going on and on for aeons, we're sitting on the dock, pointing to pylons across the mesmerising lock. What if I'm trapped inside this forever now? Well, I'm not going to be much use to anyone, but I'm groovy. <laughs> I love it. That was on my... and on, pointing at eons. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I, I even enjoyed writing a little groovy poem. I just think it's nice to... This, uh, it's pleasant to try to open your mind and think like that. Uh, yeah, I'm def- I'm gonna I'm gonna try again. I don't... I got like four lines in, and then I was like, I don't even know what I'm writing about. But maybe maybe that was the man stopping my it creativity. Was. It definitely was. It definitely was. <laughs> it definitely was. Shall I? Shall I? Shall I read the? Uh, f- it could constitute a full poem. The five lines I came up with before I stopped. Oh yeah, please. Also, kind of. Uh, Possibly autobiographical. Okay. It also doesn't make any sense in that context. I wrote, And maybe a blue, red, blue, And maybe a bee weep, Maybe a monochrome back seat, And with whose ass cheek Was I sharing the comfort? A lot of uh, Ginsberg reading went into that writing. I love it. I love it. I think Thank it, you. Yeah, I think it's great. And I think it's, uh, it's the note to end on. So that was... Um, <laughs> tearing us apart um the psychology of the hippies thanks for listening and we'll be back next week with violet's with violet's choice bye bye (laughs)